This time, we're taking a look at the post 9-11 family drama, War of the Worlds. And along the way, we ask, does Ray actually care about his children? Are the aliens eating humans or just using them as fertilizer? And should Morgan Freeman just narrate everything? Across the gulf of space, intellects, vast, cool, and unsympathetic regarded our podcast with envious eyes, and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. This is Force Fed Sci-Fi. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another entry in Spielberg Month here at the Force Fed Sci-Fi Podcast. I am your host, Chris Rupp, and I am joined by my friend and co-host. I am Sean Culp. That was my horrible Morgan Freeman impression. <laughs> Sean, I'm very disappointed that you tried to imitate me just now. <laughs> that does not sound like me at all. I'm very disappointed. I'm going to go sit with my friend Andy Dufresne and judge you. <laughs> Fair enough, Morgan. I'm, I'm sorry. My voice doesn't have the bass nor the, uh, nor, nor the range at all. To, nor the tenor to, to reach those uh, lengths that you have. Well, apology accepted. Now I shall be moving on. Oh, thank you, Morgan. Thank you. <laughs> Morgan Freeman, folks. <laughs> Chris, I totally forgot that he narrated, narrated this movie. Like, when it popped on, I was like, oh, I remember the 2000s when, like, it was, like, maybe around Bruce Almighty after that came out that like Hollywood was like, oh yeah, Morgan Freeman's got an amazing voice. Let's just have him narrate everything from like 04 to like 2012. Yeah, like I, I completely forgot about it as well. And then I did a little digging. Like this is the same year that he narrated March of the Penguins, which wound up winning an Academy Award. And I don't think that movie wins an Academy Award without Morgan Freeman's narration. There is no way. He just has that. He just has that uh, energy to him where you're just like, yes, you could read me the dictionary and I'll listen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it's just it's so if you're not ready for it, it's just so it's different because it's another thing that like Spielberg has and, you know, is trying out like he doesn't do narration in his films. And that's something I've always appreciated about Spielberg is that he's not afraid to try and do things even as he advances in his career. Yes, I agree. As we've we've gotten into the Spielberg month, he's he's still somehow like really innovative, even like in 05 when this came out, because he, you know, by then he's well into his 50s, I think, maybe even into his 60s by then, or at least so, you know, he's been around the block. And at that age, you know, he could just be pulling like a De Palma and just doing the same thing, same style. But Spielberg still tries, man. No, and that's something that I think that has kind of vaulted him into, you know, legendary status is he's always, always willing to try a new genre or new technique or take chances on younger actors. I mean, you don't – I mean, I think as directors get older, they tend to find their their lane and stay in it or cast familiar actors or just want to make the films that they want to make. But now Spielberg knows how to make the films that he wants to make that are also entertaining and will be enjoyable for generations to come. He does. I agree. I agree with you, my good sir. So what was this movie about, Chris? 
What was War of the Worlds about? Well, obviously it's based on the the same the novel of the same name by H.G. Wells and with a little bit of a twist, obviously that was set in like the late 1800s. This is set in the early 2000s. So when single dad Ray Ferrier struggles to build a relationship with his children, his weekend with them is interrupted when aliens suddenly invade Earth and his focus then shifts to now protect them at all costs. Oh, oh. <laughs> it's a so it, it's almost like a redeeming film right because he's just this like down on his luck father kind of not really interested in his kid's life or just not really a good parent and he, he finally redeems himself i guess in a way right but in a way not so much because he's like just bringing his kids back to their mom's house yeah this is something we'll uh we'll certainly dissect in a little bit but i don't know if uh if ray goes on any sort of grand arc he's still very much a a bad dad for the majority of the film and it's probably not until the third act really starts that he changes his tune and wants to be the protector and savior for his children yeah it's like right yeah yeah once he starts and realizes oh i can't just like dump these kids off at my ex-wife's crib i actually gotta pony up and be a parent yeah, it's it's weird. I mean, this is still it's a very familiar trope that Spielberg is going back to this uh, this idea of a broken family man or having children be the the main characters of his film. Um, but yeah, like I don't know, I don't even know if this sort of role even suits Tom Cruise because I mean I, I've always pictured Tom Cruise as just kind of like being you know the character he played in Top Gun. You know, he's just Maverick. He's the lone wolf. Occasionally he's going to have romantic entanglements, but he's he's fun to be around. He's a good action star like this. Him as a, a bad, bad dad is not exactly how I pictured Tom Cruise. Yeah, you're, you're right. I that that's what I felt as well when I started watching this. I, number one, I like forgot in some way that Cruise was the dad and then just like how he played it. It's really not jarring, but. It's just, it doesn't settle right with me because Cruz, he's like got his style, especially within the past 15 years, he's been action man. But even when he was younger, you know, he, he always played like these really distinct emotional roles. I just don't see him as like that deadbeat dad style either. I just, I think it was a miscast, personally speaking. I think that the that Spielberg and Cruz were just so jazzed about working together the first time around in Minority Report that mm-hmm. they were all like, hey, we should make another movie together. Yeah. And he crushed it in Minority Report. But I think it's just, I don't know. It just For this one, it just didn't hit the same. and I, it, it was hard to put my finger on it. It was like I almost didn't believe him. The the emotional stakes are are really different. I mean, in Minority Report, he's playing a you know a cop who's got a drug addiction and lost his young son in a in a horrible fashion. He's divorced from his wife, bit rudderless. So there's a lot of a lot of emotional ground to make up with John Anderton in in Minority Report. But here, Ray Ferrier, like he is he's not the best of people. Like he he's not willing to put in extra work at his job. 
you know, he drives this, uh, he basically drives around in a midlife crisis mobile, uh, this <laughs> Mustang that he continuously works on and drives like a maniac through his, through his neighborhood and has no plan for taking care of his kids when his ex-wife, played by Miranda Otto, drops them off at his house. Yeah, it's it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Maybe it's just like he's so, I don't know if it's like a cruise thing or a writing thing. Would you would you have anyone that you think would play the character better, like if it was recast? Oh, I think if we're, if we're going back to like two thousand four, two thousand three, and we want to like fill in, you know, maybe, you know somebody else who could play, you know, deadbeat dad. Um, man, I I maybe would have slotted in uh, Jeff Bridges to play Ray Farrier instead. Oh, yeah, that could have been good. A little bit older. You know, and he kind of with that hippie look, you know, I could definitely see Jeff Bridges because he basically plays an alcoholic, you know, deadbeat in Crazy Heart five years later. Yeah, I mean, this wouldn't have been much of a stretch for Jeff Bridges. And like, and I just uh, I think because it's Tom Cruise here in War of the Worlds, we can't help but like him because he does do very Tom Cruisey things here. Like he's. You know, he has emotional blow-ups. He runs because Tom Cruise runs in every movie. <laughs> and it's an entertaining blockbuster. So I think because, I mean, while Tom Cruise may not be the perfect choice to play Ray, Ray Farrier, he's the perfect choice for this kind of movie, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right movie, just wrong character. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with you. Like I think if the story would have been reworked a little bit, maybe you know instead of splitting up Ray and his ex-wife, keeping them together, but she's on a business trip. Oh. Um, um. But he's still he's you could still retain some qualities of him being you know an uninterested dad, but you can just play around with the format a little bit to make I don't know to make this feel more in line with how we perceive Tom Cruise on screen is all. Absolutely, because he's just so over with audience members that it's it's really tough to see him like turn turn heel where you're just like ah I don't buy it <laughs> maybe if he like had a drinking problem or like you said he just was like uninterested and the movie is more about him like discovering the similarities between him and his kids and learning how to be a parent that would have made I think for a more interesting film but it is tough right when the world's under attack by random aliens. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think it would have helped too. Like if it is, if his, I don't know, if his kids were, I don't know, like a bit more active, I guess, in their in their survival. But it seems like Ray is coming up with all of the ideas to keep everybody safe and secure. Yeah, I mean, because they definitely went the route of like. Um, his children kind of being just like the daughter struggling, uh, Dakota Fanning, a young Dakota Fanning when she was a kid, she played Rachel and like, she's pretty much got like bad anxiety. So throughout the film, I would say it's Dakota Fanning screaming. <laughs> so she's kind of like powerless as, you know, like a little kid would be in this situation, but his son, Robbie, who's Justin Chatwin, um, I don't know. He like plays the stereotypical teenager, I felt. And I don't know. It just didn't make sense, like his character either. Like I get like the hating the dad, angsty teenager. Got it. But then like wanting to, 
check out the military running death and then he uh, survives at the end it was just kind of i don't know his character wasn't in my mind really all that well thought out yeah like i like the idea of having you know uh, a teenage son that you know is not best friends with his dad but i also don't understand the characterization of making him overly antagonistic towards his father especially when the world is ending and aliens are everywhere right like i feel like when you get into that situation where it's fight or flight and you're really young you know generally i don't think like young people just are like screw you family i'm free but then again you know i don't know it sounded like in the movie they you know they had traumas with their dad and everything like definitely him not caring that much about him but i don't know it just they were very checked out yeah i think they ray and his kids definitely view this time as court mandated and not something any of them want to do out of the goodness of their heart no <laughs> no definitely visiting because they have to who who else is in this movie i see miranda otto as marianne F- is like his ex-wife yeah and i guess uh she she was actually pregnant at the time she was cast and born spielberg about this but he ended up uh, reworking it into her character uh, and she's great in this. She was a uh, she had just appeared in the Lord of the Rings series, and I don't know. She kind of adds like this uh, this nice quality to the film, like uh, like this reminder of like wow, you you're divorced from this level of woman. Like you must have screwed up really bad. <laughs> he did, apparently. I they don't. I don't know if they say it, like what happened, other than he just was like so selfish. Like, Ray was always selfish and just so much more concerned about, like, himself than anyone else. I mean, I believe it. Like, I I mean, especially, I mean, when you look into how maybe Rachel's anxiety developed. I mean, you got to think that they, Ray and Marion, have been divorced for a few years. And they, they those two must have had some pretty intense screaming matches before their divorce and, and split. And so I think that could have been the start of Rachel's anxiety and the whole system she's got worked out with her brother like you know this is your zone nothing bad happens to you in your zone mm-hmm. so i i mean it could be I and mean, but i don't know like people get divorced for so many reasons <laughs> yes they do yes they do uh we saw an appearance in this movie from tim robbins as uh haran ogilvy he's like this I don't know this this crazy lunatic that that hides out in a basement of a home, and uh, he does not have a filter, and he's kind of crazy. It was good acting by Tim Robbins, I would say. Yeah, he's uh, he's a lot crazy. Like I don't even know if he's ac- that's actually his home that he's hiding out in. I don't think so. I definitely think he just like took it over. Uh, it's very possible, but yeah, like he he really kind of shows up uh, later in the film as sort of like this reminder that hey, it's not just the aliens we've got to worry about. There's legitimately crazy, paranoid people out there who could get you killed. Yeah, and he almost does many times, and he's just like he's like shouting and trying to dig a hole through the ground. <laughs> he, kudos to Tim Robbins. I would say in this movie. There's just like a lot of 
focus on the whole film is primarily just focused on the trio of uh, Ray, Rachel, and Robbie, the three R's. And there's like almost like cameo appearances from like Tim Robbins, but pretty much every, and like, I guess Miranda Otto. But other than that, everyone else, I didn't really know on the cast list. I'm sure you might know the other people, but there wasn't really too many more memorable people to me. No, I mean, like I, after watching it uh, for the first time in a while, like Amy Ryan shows up as Ray's neighbor when the, when the lightning storm strikes. I mean, Amy Ryan had a very memorable run on the office for a little while. Um, also, Lenny Venito as Manny, I think he just kind of shows up in central casting as like a like a thug with an Italian accent. Um, <laughs> Rick Gonzalez also shows up as Vincent. I think he was in uh, Coach Garter. He was one of the basketball players. Um, but also, too, we get uh, cameos from the original 1953 film. We got Anne Robinson and Gene Barry um, show up at the very end of the movie as Marianne's parents in Boston. <laughs> nice he definitely did the thing where you recycle the actors from the first film back from 1953 and and i didn't and i don't mind those things right when they do that and they place them in a role sometimes it's okay i think sometimes it's okay but there's like that extra second that spielberg lingers on them where it tips the hat to the audience a little bit saying like hey these people are important maybe you should look them up wink wink (laughs) Remember them from 53 years ago? It's like, no, no, we don't. <laughs> it's a little nudge to the audience be like, hey, this wasn't the first War of the Worlds movie, eh? Eh? <laughs> right. I, I Looking at the page now, I see that David Harbour actually was in this film as a dock worker, which is wild. A young David Harbour. And then actually Channing Tatum was supposed to be in this film, but his uh, scene got cut. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I tried looking for David Harbour in the... Because there's only one doc scene in the entire movie. Um, <sighs> and I couldn't find him there. And I couldn't... Like, obviously Channing Tatum's scene was cut, so there's no way like we could find that. And I wasn't able to access any deleted scenes or anything like that. So yeah, this is a... This is a cool cast. I mean, obviously, you know, some people made it bigger after this movie came out. But, yeah, this is a this is a fun cast overall. Really diverse, I would say. Yeah, it's really bolstered. And it's not so it's, – it's almost interesting because you don't have too many big-name people, whereas I feel like maybe a movie more modern films nowadays may have more of a star-studded cast for like something like this. And it would be very like intricately woven with like the aunt is this famous actress, this, that, and the other. So it's, it's, I think it's still keeping in tune with like how Spielberg at times will cast this film with like a lot of not so high up on the like famous rating, you know? Yeah. This is still very much in that time where he's doing that. I mean, he was a few years removed from Saving Private Ryan, where, I mean, really the biggest name in that movie was Tom Hanks. And, mm-hmm. I mean, this is also still the area era where you could have cast Tom Hanks in anything, and it would have made you like half a billion dollars. It didn't matter. Um, and the same thing with this. I think in the same year he uh, released Munich, and really the biggest star in that movie was Eric Bana. And then there's a bunch of 
no names or unknown actors at the time and that wound up being a, a critical darling at the time so yeah this is this is still very much in spielberg's wheelhouse to cast you know one big time actor that you can put on the poster for the movie and just fill it with quality actors afterwards that nobody really knows give them the exposure and it's and it's a pretty big like budget with this movie too because it's like See, like $132 million, which back in 05 is pretty good. I mean, yeah, that's still, that's even now, that still buys you a lot of movie. And this is still, this is very much Spielberg's clout. You know, anytime you have Spielberg interested in directing a movie, like your but you now have carte blanche with your budget, essentially. And the power that man has, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> it's like studios know, you know, it's an instant win. Whenever he goes, most of the time. Most of the time, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, like as we mentioned, like Spielberg and Cruz had previously worked together in Minority Report and they met and uh, this was one of three projects that they decided to select and work on. And I was surprised to also learn that J.J. Abrams was originally approached to write this script, but he was... Uh, sort of knee-deep in developing loss that he passed on it. Yeah, I mean, because J.J., he, I know, um, he, you know, as we've, and I'm sure we'll discover more as he, his films come up, but he's like a sci-fi dude. I know he made Super 8, which is, in my opinion, a pretty good film. So I can definitely see them asking him to write. And Lost, I've never seen Lost. Um, I only know that Michael Keaton was supposed to be in the pilot. And then once he found out how long it was, he he backed out. But I know Lost, I remember Lost in like the 2000s was huge. It was like the Game of Thrones before Game of Thrones. Yeah, Lost was like definitely, well, it rose to prominence around the same time as Facebook did. So it was really kind of the first show, at least on network television, that developed a major internet following. And like I think there was I remember there was even one point where they they asked for story suggestions from fans online and they actually incorporated that into the show, which is which is still weird to me that you crowdsource your scripts, but like whatever. <laughs> it's 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 weird and it's also brilliant at the same time because then you can retain viewership. I mean, yeah, like if people want to do that, sure, but it's just like, like no, you don't, you don't source that from the fans. I mean, they tried doing that with Snakes on a Plane, and look what happened with that. Really, I did not know that they did that with Snakes on a Plane. Oh yeah, that that whole movie, everything you see in that movie was basically like came from like Facebook groups or Facebook suggestions. Oh my god, it all makes sense now. I can't believe it. I I've never seen it, so I can't say. Because when I saw the trailer, even back then, I was like, this is stupid. But that totally, it just cleared up that murky waters of my disillusionment. <laughs> uh, yeah, so basically the gist of it is that fans, even when you give fans exactly what they want, it never comes out right. Amen to that, brother, as we discussed in The Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh that movie's bad for other reasons, but please go listen to our, our past episode on that if you want to hear Sean and I just rip into a very bad Star Wars movie. <laughs> you know what I really liked about uh, this film is it was very East Coast, you know? 
Like it, it definitely reminded me of like a Boston, like Connecticut, New Jersey, like type of place. It definitely it did because a lot of films, you know, it's in L.A., so it all feels like L.A. But this, it had a like an East Coast vibe to it. Yeah, definitely, I agree with that. And it, it, it has like this. Um, I, th- I would say like it has a small town feel to it. Like we don't see a ton of major uh, major landmarks to it. I mean, in this, I mean, even though it's uh, starts in New Jersey, this feels like this movie could take place in any one of an infinite number of small towns that exist throughout America. Mm-hmm. And that's, and I think that was a good choice for him to do that because if he would have done like Chicago or New York or something, you know, then I mean, sure you get the money shots and the big buildings, but you kind of lose that like intimate small town feel of like, Oh crap. How are these people going to deal with this? Right. And then you also fall into the territory that Roland Emmerich has cemented himself in. Like if you set this movie in Chicago or New York, like you were saying, then you feel too much like independence day or, you know, one of an infinite number of, you know, major science fiction blockbusters that have decided to blow up major landmarks or major cities. <laughs> right? Yeah. You're so right with Roland Emmerich. Because didn't he just do like Moonfall or something? Oh, yeah. That, that movie's god awful. I don't know how, and no offense to him, but I don't know how he keeps getting money for movies. Like, I don't think his movies have made money in the past, like, decade. Like, it's crazy how these things keep coming out, like San Andreas, Moonfall. Like, who actually watches these movies? I think people are just mostly tired of seeing I hate Earth movies and watch me destroy <laughs> beloved landmarks and cities. I think people are just sick of those movies. I I agree. I think it ended, it, for me, it ended with 2012 with John Cusick. That was like the last one of those that I ever watched. And I'm like, I'm good. I don't need this. I didn't see that out of principle because I didn't like that he was feeding into people's, you know, you know, conspiratorial thoughts about the earth is going to end on 2012 because the Mayan calendar said so. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, the Mayans also sacrifice people on top of pyramids. Do we really want to start taking, you know, end of the world <laughs> advice from them? Right. Hey, while you're done murdering this person, let's finish up the calendar this year. I mean, getting back to War of the Worlds before we go too far down a, a you know, I hate Roland Emberidge uh, <laughs> tangent here, <laughs> which uh, we could go on for a little bit about that. Um, you know, it's it's funny to note that, like, with War of the Worlds, you know, Cruz and Spielberg were so excited to make this together that they actually pushed production on a couple of movies that they that they had planned separately. Like uh, Spielberg was going to do Munich instead of doing this and tom cruise is going to do mission impossible 3 but they were like nah let's do war of the world so we can knock it out pretty quick yeah because like filming was pretty short i believe right um lasted just over two months um and but the uh, pre-production schedule from what i saw was totally condensed on a normal film you have about six months of pre-production. That's like your location scouting, set building, um, costume design, and things like that. For War of the Worlds, everybody got three months for this movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
they weren't messing around. I mean, like for three months and uh, like you know, three months pre-production, two months shooting. This is the finished product. We get like, okay, yeah, you made the most of your time. Rock on. That is just like real slick with their turnaround. Like usually films, I feel like take a long time to do, right? Especially nowadays. Like post-production always feels like it takes like a year. Well, depending on how complex your movie is, like, yeah, it's going to take a while in post-production because you have the visual effects, you have the sounds uh, to uh, put in, and you also have the editing. Like, you, mm-hmm. like there's there's probably tons and tons of footage that gets left on the cutting room floor for the sake of editing and making a cohesive product. Like, if you want want to peek behind the curtain as to like what goes into editing a film i mean check out check out several youtube videos on how star wars was saved in the edit so <laughs> there's a lot that goes that there's a lot that happens in post-production yeah yeah that's where they they hopefully tie it all together in a bow what did you think about the soundtrack for this film i love the soundtrack i mean i'm a i'm a john williams stan um and it i mean it has a lot of you know low trumpets it's very it feels very horror-esque like it almost feels like it doesn't belong in this movie but that's in a good way because then i was gonna say that it almost sounds like it belongs in an alfred hitchcock movie oh that's good yeah the 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 music seemed to me like it fit the devastation and like the the uh destruction that was going on right it was not like melancholy it wasn't uplifting it was very like the world is dying (laughs) everything sucks just listen to all this music now and and feel it get engrossed in it yeah and it's also interesting to note that john williams did not have a finished movie to work with i think spielberg only gave him something like six reels which is the first hour of the movie to show him and say like, okay, use this and then build your, your soundtrack all off of this. Wow. Okay. Oh, geez. Well, then maybe that's why the soundtrack sounds the way it does. Right. Because he didn't, he never got to see the end. I mean, there, I mean, he makes use. I mean, obvious, I think, uh, I think he just inferred or met with Spielberg about, you know, does, you know, do, does this family reunite at the end or is there some sort of, you know, battle or victory that I can try and celebrate here. So, I mean, I I would think that Spielberg gave him enough pieces of the puzzle to work things out for himself. Yeah, right. Hopefully. <laughs> it, it sounds good, so I'm sure it all worked out that with them. But that's kind of interesting that he he ended up, you know, only getting an hour of footage and then Spielberg's like, all right, devise the whole soundtrack. I mean, it's ballsy. It goes... <laughs> but hey, it's if anyone could do it, it's John Williams. Exactly. <laughs> anyone the man's enough of a genius he can fill in any blank that he wants to. Oh, I agree. And it's like I also thought with this film, you know, because I, I remember seeing it in theaters when it came out in 05, and the destruction was kind of interesting, especially for like during that time like right in the mid 2000s because we had like the wars going on in the Middle East, like 9-11 was still kind of somewhat fresh. Yeah, like watching it now, like I mean, being, gosh, nearly 20, 
one year's removed from 9-11. Everything about this movie screams about that post 9-11 fear and paranoia because now we're at this point we're entrenched in wars at least the United States is entrenched in wars in, in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. There seems like you know terrorist attacks happening all the time, or rumors of terrorist attacks. This is still in the days of the the terror alert level, or you know you know whatever color of the day the government had told us to be afraid of. <laughs> um, and then even you know Robbie and Rachel at one point in the movie just look at Ray and ask like, "Is it the terrorists?" Like, because no, they don't know and. No one knows what the aliens are planning or what they're after. And I I love the scene when they're when they're walking in the fairy town and you just see the glimpses of the other citizens as they're just aimlessly walking anywhere to get away from the uh, the tripods. That there's all kinds of rumors swirling around like, oh, Europe got it worse than us. And then someone goes, oh, Europe's fine. No one knows what's happening there. <laughs> Yeah, the, he he dove really into that post nine eleven fear, and like you know, especially during that time where you know we're so worried as a country about people being terrorists. It's 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 almost like a slice of what life was like during that time, and it, it it's kind of interesting to reflect back like while watching it, especially like the imagery he used, you know, like. I know you wrote in the notes like running through a dust of vaporized people and how he's covered in dust when Ray gets back into his apartment. You know, a lot of people during 9-11, they were covered in the dust, you know, from when the towers fell. So I think he kind of, he 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 used it as influence, I'm sure. Yeah, I think when anybody mentions, at least anybody who was alive uh, for ni- to witness 9-11, when you mention it, there's always you know probably a handful of images that comes into people's minds but i think one that kind of stands out at least for me is there's a there's a photograph of a of a businessman who clearly was working in the world trade center you know he's got his sleeves rolled up he's holding a briefcase and he is just covered in dust from after the buildings fell and this to me was just like has seeing ray running through dust clouds of vaporized people and then coming home and realizing, you know, being in shock of what he just witnessed and then going in the mirror and realizing, oh, my God, I'm literally covered in death in death dust. Yeah. And yeah. And he scrubbed it off of him. That was while he was running. I'm like, oh, my God, that's just got to be awful. And I think and it almost like replays in and of itself once the they realize that the the tripods are like taking the humans and kind of like grinding them up and the roots are blood, you know, he breaks off the root and it's like blood. I mean, the imagery of like how people's bodies are being used for like, you know, just utter destruction. It was pretty, it was pretty well done. I think in my, it's something that we really haven't seen in a lot of movies. Well, I think there's also this callous disregard that the aliens certainly have for humans like they they're so bent on destroying them through any means possible you have the the vaporizing weapons and then you have the the scenes where they're harvesting humans or they're sucking them up into the uh, the tripods themselves or like you were saying they're harvesting their blood and 
spreading it across the landscape. That's a very, that's a horrifying image. I think I was 14 when I saw this, and I couldn't believe that, like, oh, my God, if aliens land, this is what they're going to do to us. They're going to turn us into roots. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, yeah, it's so gross, and it just makes you think about, like, human life and, it definitely plays into that alien fear, you know, what an alien invasion could look like. So I remember seeing this in the theaters as well when I was 14. And God, it was it was terrifying. <laughs> it was absolutely terrifying. It was crazy. And then, like, on top of, you know, Ray's just drive to survive, I guess. You, he runs into Harlan's fear and paranoia that, as we mentioned earlier, gets nearly gets Ray and Rachel killed until Ray has to murder him himself. Yeah. Yeah, I, that scene was really So, it's just it's so interesting like the beats of this movie, right? Because when I saw like Ray turn to that point where he's like I'm just going to murder this man because he's going to endanger my daughter and get us both killed. Like I think it's an interesting depiction of like what lengths people will go to protect their family, right? But it also shows like in the craziest of circumstances what the regular average Joe could be capable of. And it's like murdering this crazy man, which it's like I don't condone that at all. But it's just a it's a really hard scene to watch, I think. Yeah, like and I think that is definitely Ray's turning point. Like for me, his arc is completed through the act of killing Harlan. Um, and this he has this goes on incredible growth in in this dirty basement. Like he has to let Robbie go before this scene and he he has to assume that he's dead, but he wants to keep that hope alive. And then I I love the scene where Rachel like turns away from him because he doesn't know any of the lullabies she wants to hear. So he just decides to start singing Little Deuce Coop to her. And it's it's such a... I mean, yes, we're laughing about it, but yeah, it's such a great moment because he does... He's trying so hard to connect to his daughter and just make her feel safe. And then the fi- I think the only way that he can ensure that she's safe, at least in this moment, is to rid them of the person who's putting them in danger more most often in this case it's harlan and yes no we don't condone what ray did but ray had no choice in dealing with harlan in this situation absolutely because it's like do you leave do you leave the house and put your family at risk or not you know and or do you murder this man it's like the horrible circumstances in which they're in it's a tough choice and and that's why i i like a lot of elements of this movie because spielberg asked those hard questions and he could have spun this film in just like such a different way, you know, where, you know, yeah, the aliens vaporize people, but humans aren't killing humans. And, and we see it though. And in the other scene where they're driving the van and the dude gets the gun and he murders the driver. I mean, Spielberg goes all in on just like the pandemonium and how crazy people can get with chaos. And I think it's like those elements of realism that really it's it's just it's it's not off putting, but it's just so shocking for this movie, I think. Yeah, I it's yeah, like Spielberg definitely goes there and it's certainly I think 
you know, playing on this sense of desperation of like, you know, your world is ending. Your safety is no longer guaranteed. So it, it kind of puts that question right in front of us and asking us, like, what would you do in this situation you know, when you're confronted with it? You don't know. You don't know the lengths you would go to to protect your family until you're confronted with said situation. And I mean, it's. I think, and I know we talked about Spielberg utilizing, you know, the trope of a broken man, but I think in this, using the broken man in this situation subverts that trope because, yes, Ray seems like a very uninterested dad until the only thing he has left to do is make sure his children are safe. Yeah, because he has nothing else to care about. Doesn't have a car, doesn't have anything. Yeah, like I and I know we've been dumping on the character of Ray a little bit and he does he does have an arc. It's not the best arc for this film, but he does have one where he ultimately decides to protect his children and you know, realize you know, like you, nothing is going to change the fact that Robbie is always going to be his son, but at some point you as a parent have to learn that it's okay to let your children go. Mhm. Yes, and we see that when Robbie, for some reason, wants to go and watch the military attempt to blow up the aliens. <laughs> I still that that still boggles me, but I get it. You know, I don't know. I but also I was younger once. You know, I was a teen, so maybe that's how I would have reacted. Probably not, because I always wanted to live. I mean, maybe Robbie is just like kind of a an allegory for American youths at the time, because, you know, I mean, we were we were both 10 when 9-11 happened. So maybe it was just kind of like a, a commentary on you know American youth at the time and wanting to feel like, you, you know, I can run off and join the military and get back at the people who, you know, attacked us. Or in this case, Robbie or maybe Robbie just has a, a, you know, a military fetish and he just wants to see stuff blow up. I don't know. I don't know what's going through Robbie's head at this point. I think you nailed it on the head with the idea of like him being a representation of youth's culture at that time. Because I know like now um, there's a lot of people in the military that joined during like the Afghan war, Iraq war, like in the 2000s like right when it kicked off and and those people like the reasons why they joined are so much different than why other people join you know like people that join now it's like there is no war you know the motivations are kind of just like oh i want you know free schooling or whatever yeah the motivations i mean are certainly different you know for each conflict and each generation but you know robbie is uh at first very rah-rah about joining the military until Rachel stops him and asks that heartbreaking question. Who's going to take care of me if you go? Oh. Like, you know, your, your dad's right there too. Like that, that sucked. The biggest slight. <laughs> Even the eight year olds like, sorry, dad, you just don't have the chops. <laughs> you know, you're a bad parent when your eight year old is calling you out and saying you suck at your Man. job. Man. Did, did like the novel have you read the novel um i read like a um like a abridged version of it when i was much younger because i don't know i was gonna ask you if, if like they had anything to do with like families in the novel um i don't think so like the novel is centered on 
a one single narrator who's uh, who's trying to get back to um, his wife in um, in old England at the time. Um, huh. But it's interesting, like to see like how the themes of the novel have evolved over time. Because when it was first written, it was kind of conceived as sort of like this commentary on um, uh, the the colonization that uh, British would go you know, go to other countries and say like, oh, we claim this. But then the other people would be like, you know, we actually live here first. It's like, oh, no, we still claim this for England. This is England now. <laughs> um, so, so this was really, at the time when it came out, it was really viewed as uh, there was a commentary on evolutionary theory, Victorian superstitions and fears and prejudices at the time. So it was really kind of like the first, like one of the first science fiction books that kind of served as, more of a social commentary as opposed to a straightforward, you know, or here's a robot or here's a, you know, here's a create, here's a creation from science and watch it, you know, terrorize mankind kind of thing. Wow. That's wild. I can't believe, I can't believe that it was written in 1898. For some reason, I thought, I always, always assume that it came out later in like the 1920s, 30s, because I've known about like Orson Welles, because like my grandfather told me stories about listening to Orson Welles read it in uh, 38, and like how he scared the living dog crap out of people. Like people actually thought they were aliens, and it was like actually like terrifying. But I didn't know that the book was that old. It's such an old book, and but it's so it still holds up. Like if you're gonna make a list of like the top 10 most essential science fiction books like war of the worlds has to be included in that because we now have we've had a whole genre of alien invasion movies in uh, books and shows that have been based off of this premise that hg wells created he is the godfather of science fiction in a lot of ways yeah like he's definitely one of the the one of the godfathers to it i would also put um isaac asimov uh in that list as well but like this is and it's so interesting to see how this has evolved over the years. Like you mentioned the Orson Welles radio program in 1938 and um, the original film adaptation in 1953 that was uh, definitely seen as a Cold War commentary. And this, like this version, is sort of like a post 9-11 commentary as well. So, I mean, I'm, I'm also kind of wondering, like, if we do another version of this in 50 years like what does that look like i mean are we are we talking about like another sort of like post um horrible event landscape that we have to navigate or is this um the commentary on another unseen enemy that we're not ready for like i don't know i don't know what a remake of this could look like global warming chris that'll be that'll be the enemy <laughs> uh no i think that was already covered in the, the day after tomorrow so i think uh, that's been locked up <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but I think we could do a better one. <laughs> uh, if there's another screenwriter out there that wants to take a chance on remaking War of the Worlds, hey, call us up. Call us up. We we can be the podcast guys in it. <laughs> I, you know what's interesting, and maybe that's why this film doesn't seem so much like a Roland Emmerich film, is because they don't blow up like they don't have the money shots. Like in Independence Day of blowing up the White House or, or, you know, Mount Rushmore. Like this film, it's I feel like this film is more known for its sets. Like the plane crash set was really interesting and so 
just um, detailed. I, I don't know if they actually, like, blew up a plane, but, like, that's that's what I always remember about this movie. The plane crash scene, and then when he's running out after the tripod, after they take, uh, after it takes his daughter, Rachel. Yeah, the set pieces in this are absolutely brilliant. And, yes, to answer your question, they actually did buy a decommissioned jumbo jet, transported it to um, – to the set and uh, dismantled it on site there. They actually built like the houses and the entirety of the set around the plane. So it's, it was really wow. uh, neat to read up on that. That see, that's commitment. That's where the budget came from, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that jumbo jet costs like $2 million. So yeah, <laughs> Jesus, but I think it was worth it. You definitely get your money's worth um, in terms of the budget for this movie. And like the, I think um, one of the more impressive set pieces is definitely when Ray emerges from that basement after Rachel's been taken and sees everything covered with the Martian roots and and then he has to try and find his way, you know, to convince the machines, hey, take me, let me save my daughter. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember that 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 it, from like being in the theaters and and then like the grenade scene too. You know, where they're pulling him out and then he blows up the tripod. That one always stuck with me as well. That was so cool. Like, I mean, I think it was definitely one of those things where Cruz was kind of nudging the screenwriters a little bit. It's like, <laughs> you know, you've got to give me like a hero moment here, right? You got to give me, I've been a deadbeat dad for this entire movie. You got to give me something here in this movie where I emerge looking like a badass. Right. I mean,. I don't know how he could have, like, opened those grenades, personally, but I chalked that up to, like, movie magic, you know? But it, it you're absolutely right. That seems like a Cruise-esque moment. And, and more to your point about blowing up the major landmarks, like, I think when you look at it through, like, against a movie like Independence Day, this, is, this film kind of seems like an anti-Independence Day in a lot of ways. Yeah. I I'll agree with you on that because it's so it's so small scale. Like you hear about the tripods attacking other parts of the world, but you don't really see it. It's solely like focused on Ray and his kids. Wherever they go, the aliens go. So you don't get to see the big scope of it. And I think in a way, that's what makes it good. Because it's more about their journey than like, you know, destruction of Earth per se. It's sort of like it sort of feels like this detached, ignorant, you know, sense to the danger. Like even even when they get to his ex-wife's, um, you know, house in the suburbs, like, yes, they're safe temporarily until the plane crashes and then they hear the tripods roaring. And then it's, you know, all hell breaks loose like we got to get out of here. And it's almost like this. You're never safe until you actually are aware of the danger around you. Yeah. Until you get home, right? Home sweet home. Nothing's safer than home. Until it's not. <laughs> Until it's blown up. <laughs> or in this case, vaporized. Or in the case of this movie, the tripod's literally emerging from the ground. <laughs> right? Oh, God. If, you know, if we want to talk about lens flares, that was my lens flare with this movie like really that yeah that was so that dumb. was that bothered you oh yeah the whole the, the like this like tv 
<laughs> I don't know how they plug it in. And then he's like, oh, look, you know, wow. If we slow it down, we can see the aliens coming. And I'm like, okay, all right. You know, that that to me was silly, was really silly. And then uh, Ray pointing at the birds on the tripod. Like to the he had to he had to tell the military personnel like wow look look see it's like really you're gonna tell a bunch of trained professionals that no one could see it but you uh but there could have been they just weren't looking like uh they were more <laughs> focused on making sure the civilians were safe I mean I mean I was gonna ask like if the tripods coming out of the ground did anything for you but uh apparently it didn't no no the tripods coming out of the ground were awesome but seeing like them use the tape to like slow down to show that the aliens are like going in was kind of silly to me actually that whole scene in the plane with like the reporter was kind of silly to me sexy set but i just didn't know the importance of that scene other than to like just show that exposition I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a great effect to see the the tripods emerging from the ground for the first time. But like, uh, yeah, I I will I'll agree with you that we don't need to see how the sausage is made and how the aliens you know land got in the tripods to come out of the ground. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just took it as implied, but that's okay. That's okay. How about you? Did you? What was your lens flare? Oh, uh, and, <laughs> um. My lens flare is uh, is Robbie, and specifically, <laughs> like, how in the hell did he escape from that fiery inferno, oh, yeah. that major battle, and make his way to Boston to <laughs> have that emotional reunion with Ray and Rachel at the end of the film? How in the hell did he get away? Uh, I don't know, Chris. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> because the screenwriter said so. I mean, I love David Kep, the screenwriter. I think he makes entertaining blockbusters. But, man, there are massive plot holes in every single one of his movies. And this one was Robbie. <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> that is always the thing that everyone that I've ever talked to about this movie says. Like, how the heck did Robbie get back? And how did he, like, you know, how did he know? Yeah, and apparently he goes on this major journey of self-discovery on the way back to Boston because he doesn't call Ray Ray anymore. He calls him Dad. <laughs> so father and son back together. Apparently they've reconciled now that the aliens are all dying. That's right. The destruction of the troops by the tripod opened his eyes to how important family is, Chris. <laughs> Hard sell. Uh, nothing like characterization that happens off screen. I love it. <laughs> The best kind, right? <laughs> That's funny. Oh. That's funny. Oh boy. <laughs> what did you think of the uh what did you think of uh the special effects to this? You know, I gotta say, like after fifteen years, I think they've held up pretty well. I um you know, the ILM used a lot of practical effects in this movie. They didn't go you know, too heavy on the computer effects. I think the most complicated shot they had to make was when the uh, the bridge blows up behind Ray's house. But yeah, they didn't go. Uh, they didn't go hog wild. This didn't go Star Wars prequel trilogy with all the visual effects on us. No, no, you're you're absolutely right. They, yeah, it was very tame. It felt like maybe it's a product of 05. 
<laughs> they certainly could have done more with the visual effects, but chose not to, I think, to enforce the realism or at least make the audience kind of fill in the gaps with real world experiences. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like Spielberg, you know, he always wants to he always has family in there. Yeah, always family. There's there's family in every single one of his movies. It's what he cares about, Chris. <laughs> did you uh, have any red shirts? Oh, I did. And um, when I first saw this, like I had to rewind when I was watching it to make sure that what I was seeing was right. So at the very end of the movie, when the military realizes there's no shield on the tripods and they use a rocket launcher to bring it down, when the when the tripod is falling and smashes that building, it moves a car. And behind this car, there was a civilian that was taking shelter behind it. And this car winds up crushing this poor civilian. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm watching it. Like, I have to watch it. It's like, wait, there's a civilian behind it. Car crushes it. Are, are we just left? To, I'm going to assume that that civilian is dead because there's a you know three-ton car laying on top of him holy crap so that poor civilian at the very end is like oh man i was trying to get out of the way but this car crushed me wow i did not catch that no i thought you were going the route of the birds (laughs) they blew up the birds (laughs) on the tripod no (laughs) (laughs) wow another case of uh random civilians getting murdered for the sake of storytelling purposes (laughs) It's funny. Uh, uh, I just, uh, I don't think they quite knew where the visual effects were going to be. So that poor civilian just died because he couldn't move out of the way fast enough. Uh, there's always going to be casualties, Chris, especially in an alien invasion. <laughs> hey, it's war, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, apparently. Absolutely. <laughs> mine was easy. What about you, Sean? Did you have a red shirt? Yeah, mine was Manny the Mechanic. He gets like vaporized oh. in the rearview mirror. And so I, you know, after Ray's pleading with him just to, to get in the car, Manny says, no, get out of the car. So Ray says, I'm going. And sure enough, you get to see Manny get vaporized. Poor guy. Yeah. And it's uh, it's kind of indicative on you know about Ray. And it's really disheartening for Ray for the rest of the movie because he always tries to do the right thing and save people. But it always winds up going sideways on him. <laughs> it's like the uh what is it from fairly odd parents uh timmy's mom everything i touch dies <laughs> that that is ray <laughs> in this case everyone he touches dies <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> poor ray he he tries so hard he got so far but in the end it didn't even matter yeah thanks lincoln park <laughs> You're welcome. I knew what you were going for. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I'm curious. I really want to mm. know, what was the toxic fandom for this one? <laughs> it's it's one of these things, that, like, it's such a short sequence in the movie that, like, it shouldn't even of course. be on a list of, of, of this list here. So this the latest entry of this week in toxic fandom the master of the hudson ferry is wearing the u.s navy officer's insignia on his hat in reality 
If required to wear such a hat, it would have the insignia of a U.S. merchant marine officer. <laughs> Probably someone from the Navy saw it and was like, no, no. <laughs> I'm gonna, no, you can't do this. <laughs> I'm going to take this to IMDb. It's just, it, it's not even, in the grand scheme of the movie, it's not that long of a sequence with their time on the ferry and trying to get on it. So for, and this person is in the movie, you see him on screen for maybe all of a minute, if that. So this shouldn't even be that big of a deal. So somebody saw the hat, paused the movie, and then took umbrage with the fact that this person's wearing the wrong kind of hat. <laughs> I'm not shocked. I, I really nothing shocks me anymore with this toxic fandom. They will see. Oh, no, I, no limits, Chris. No, go for it. There, there is no lows <laughs> that they will tread. Oh no, it's just uh, I'm I'm not shocked. Yeah, like you said, anymore by what people will complain about on the internet. <laughs> no, but I don't know. It's uh, it doesn't you know surprise me with the internet there's always going to be someone that gripes it's never a perfect film <laughs> never but this film no i mean i would say did a pretty good job at being a perfect film for the box office huh <laughs> yeah huh? it was uh it was a it was really it was really successful at the time that it came out i mean um it made over 600 million dollars during its box office run and 2005 was actually there was a pretty loaded year for movies like i remember batman begins came out this year as well and um just looking here on uh you know doing a quick search uh, star wars episode three revenge of the sith came out harry potter and the goblet of fire uh, sin city also came out this year as well so there was a there was a lot of fun movies that came out in 2005 i don't think you would have been anybody would have been disappointed at any point in the year with anything they saw no i think I saw pretty much all those movies that you listed in theaters that year. It was a good year for filmmaking. For sure. A lot of blockbusters. A lot of blockbusters. I think people, you know, in a post 9-11 world, I think people really just wanted to be, you know, wanted to see blockbusters and wanted to, you know, see, you know, fun things on screen. And they want to be reminded of the reality and the horrors that they went through just four years prior to this. Well... They watched War of Worlds, so they got a nice uh, dosage of that. Um, I also was surprised to see, like, I mean, as great of a movie as it was, I think people were a bit more divided on it back then. I mean, this still has some pretty good ratings nowadays. It's got a 75 on uh, on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it has a 73 on Metacritic. It's got a B plus on CinemaScore. But it seems like people were pretty divided at the time. I, I think people just kind of... I don't think people quite realize exactly what Spielberg was going for. I mean, because he, I think people were trying to equate this with E.T. or Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But, like, really, this is a this is a different movie than either of those. So I think you can't compare the, the those films, in my opinion. No, and and I, I agree. I think the, the idea of what he was going for was lost. Because I remember the big issue a lot of people were pissed off that he was doing a remake 
you know, because I it was like right around the 2000s when remakes of old films from like the 40s, 50s, 60s, etc. started coming back in into more popular play. And I just remember so many people being pissed off that he's doing War of the Worlds. Like even people quoting like, ah, he's losing his touch. Why, why remake a perfect film? It's like because the man wants to. It's not about the remake. It's about the message, the themes. Yeah, if he thought he could make an entertaining movie, then by God, he was going to do it. So that's what he did. And he did. Absolutely. Did this uh, this film win any awards? Um, no major awards. Um, the technical Oscars it was up for lost all those to Peter Jackson's King Kong. So... <laughs> It's a Peter Jackson epic movie. Of course, it's going to win all the block, all the Oscars. Um, did win one Saturn Award for Dakota Fanning for Best Young Actor slash Actress. So, yeah, definitely a feather in her cap uh, at that point in her career. Um, although I was, uh, I don't know if you read up on this, but uh, I there was a lot of rumblings out there that Spielberg thought that this movie should have made more money. Hmm. No. That's kind of shocking. <laughs> More money? What do you want to gross a billion? Well, remember what happened at the same time that you know this movie was coming out, and Tom Cruise was on his press tour. Oh, is this like um, when he went on Oprah? Yeah, this is the this is the same time as him jumping on Oprah's couch <laughs> and yelling at her that he loves Katie Holmes. <laughs> I remember that. I love you, Katie Holmes. Oh, my God. What an interesting man. What an interesting time. Like, I just, like, this is pre-Facebook days, and the image of Tom Cruise jumping on Oprah's couch like a demented four-year-old just made waves everywhere. Oh, yeah. And nowadays, when you see that, nowadays, it's like, wait, you didn't jump on the couch and shout crazy things? It's like funny how our culture's changed so much. And it is interesting, it definitely, like how, you know, antics are just now accepted from everybody, I guess. Um, but like he, but Spielberg was upset at Cruz for this because he did this like on a presser for War of the Worlds. And he attributed his quote unquote antics Cruz's antics to really affecting the box office numbers and since Tom Cruise is still very much a Scientologist and Scientology Scientologist is not like people going to medical doctors Spielberg recommended a doctor to Cruise which um, this poor doctor's office wound wound up being picketed by Scientologists so it really kind of alienated and uh, put a nail in the coffin as to their working career that makes sense why they don't work together anymore yeah, I I think yeah, this was a very controversial time. Yeah, with him cuz I I remember like my parents talking about that him being kind of like odd with like jumping on the couch and then like the the resurfaced quotes about him not believing in doctors and like medicine and etc. And I remember it really like shook the uh I guess TMZ or whatever the heck was around back then. <laughs> You know, the news news stations before the Internet. Yeah, this definitely kind of fed into, you know, people's perception of Cruz a little bit. And, and I think he's he's now learned to stay out 
of the public spotlight so much now because i mean his movies make half a billion dollars every time there's a new one so he's he's learned to just show up do his press work and not jump on anybody's couch anymore yeah yeah he's he's really good at press now he'll like go on the talk show be charming as hell and then bail (laughs) he learned from his mistakes oh one can hope um but I mean, you never know. Spiel, uh, Cruz still has plenty of time left to mess something up in his career. I think. <laughs> right. <laughs> Only time will tell. I'm dead. Uh well. Is there anything else you want to chat about before we uh, get into our rating? Nah. Let's uh, let's get into our rating, shall we? Whoo! All right. On this episode of Force Fed Sci-Fi, we will rate this movie as wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, or would host a viewing party. Chris Rupp, what do you rate Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds? You know, as we, we've been mentioning a lot, like Spielberg always finds a way to surprise me. And especially at this point in his career where it seemed like he was going to settle into his tried and true method of casting tom hanks in a movie and just riding that wave to box office success but no he went a little different he added narration he this is a obviously this is a remake uh with a lot of modifications from the original story and i like that this is a departure from spielberg's normal take on aliens i mean you know as we've already this is the third of spielberg's alien movies that we've covered for spielberg month so and it's fun to see him kind of play around with this genre a little bit and i think with all that being said i think the performances are top notch in this movie top to bottom i don't think there's a weak link in any of that chain um the visual effects are fantastic and they've continued to hold up to this day um the ending is rather abrupt you know with the the bacteria killing the aliens and the victory for for the military but i don't think that takes away from the fact that this is still a great film and it really i think in um, most of the films that i've watched i think this does the best job of capturing the feeling of a post 9-11 america obviously with a science fiction twist and so with all that said i'm calling this a, a, a wood host viewing party oh wow High praises, man. Woo. Yeah, I just remember, like, I came away from rewatching it thinking, like, I, like, I think this is incredible. Like, even after all this time, this is still an amazing movie. Kick butt, man. Kick butt. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Sean? Where, uh, where do you come in on uh, Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds? Uh, Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds. So, um... I got to give credit where credit's due. Spielberg is always, it, it's almost, it's so interesting. Like seeing these movies where he does, uh, he works with aliens. It's like, I always forget that he is like known for sci-fi and working with aliens because, you know, his career, his, he's so diverse with his genres and he's not, it's great about him is he's, he's not so pigeonholed into like, ah, he's the alien guy, you know, sci-fi guy. He, and that's why I really enjoyed this film because Spielberg's able to have aliens as the backdrop attacking the world, but make it so focused on family and use like current cultural things like 9-11, the war in Iraq, family values, divorce. I mean, change and he's 
he never once gets pigeonholed into a certain style. And so for that, I appreciate it. And, you know, as we've talked about, sets, everything, he's always top-notch. So I would put this film actually as a uh, would-own. I don't think it's a perfect film. I think the ending, the abrupt ending is kind of a little off-putting. The story, um, like with Ray's character, just is a little kind of eh. But very well acted, well done, would-own, baby. Excellent. High marks all around for War of the Worlds. That's right. I don't think we've had a bad Spielberg film yet. <laughs> no, uh, he's uh, contributed much to the science fiction genre. and He uh, puts everything he's got into making quality sci-fi films. He does. He really does. But he's just not, you know, he's just so unique. I mean, it'll be interesting to see like if he continues making science fiction films. I mean, he's at the point in the car- his career, I think he's kind of more focusing on, on human interest uh dramas and just making whatever film he wants but uh let's uh let's close out spielberg month with a with a more recent science fiction film we're gonna Ooh. we're gonna talk we're gonna talk uh 2018's uh ready player one an adaptation of the beloved novel from ernest klein and spielberg's uh latest foray into big visual effects and spectacle and uh entertainment so yeah we're gonna close it out with ready player one all right I haven't seen it. I'm looking. I guess I'll look forward to it because I know you were really passionate about this movie, so I'm I'm ready. <laughs> it's a it's a good. One. I'm a big fan of the novel, and uh, yeah, I'll be. Uh, I'm definitely pumped to revisit Ready Player One. Ooh. All right, Chris. Well, it's always a pleasure, my good sir. You are the man. Likewise, Sean. You, it is always fun to talk about these movies with you. And uh, if you all enjoyed this episode of the Force Fed Sci-Fi Podcast, please, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. That is the best place to do it, and it really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at ForceFed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts. And go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, ForceFedSciFi.com, for show notes and links to all of our social media. And so for all of us at the ForceFed Sci-Fi team, we will see you next time.